Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. We're in the thick of the spring season, as your allergies might have reminded you, but maybe you're also seeing what's blooming in your city, your backyard. Maybe it's a garden you're growing. No matter what it is, the shared link with most of it out here in the desert, a lot of us in New Mexico rely on water from our local communities to see everything grow. It is hard to overstate just how important water is in New Mexico, but the question is, can our state's resources keep up with demand and the change that we're seeing year to year? A few things to consider. Climate change is seemingly making it hotter. There are also increased demands as New Mexico grows, seeking to attract more jobs, more manufacturing. Then think about the new water-centric mega industry on the horizon here in the state with the growth of recreational cannabis. Yeah, there are visual reminders all over the state year after year about water supply across New Mexico. In the summer of 2013, Elephant Butte Reservoir dwindled to its lowest level in 40 years, according to NASA's Earth Observatory. There's also the Rio Grande with a lot less water these days. Last summer, Rio Grande flows through Albuquerque were some of the lowest they'd been since 1970. So there are clearly questions over conservation. Are we doing enough to address changes in our water supply? This week, we're taking a high-level look at drought in New Mexico. Clearly, we all know it's dry. New Mexico is a desert. That's obvious. But what does it actually mean to be in drought? And what are the consequences of prolonged drought? Ahead of our last winter season, last year we spoke to a water expert and a longtime local journalist turned the director of the Water Resources Program at UNM. He's also a professor. That is John Fleck. He spoke to us to break down what New Mexico's water issues are and why they matter. Mexicans often might describe our normal summers here as dry heat. That is often a phrase we use. We're in the desert. We're used to seeing high fire danger signs in national forests, grass fires in the bosque. But is that just the normal part of living in a desert or does drought have anything to do with it. New Mexico's drought status isn't really actually anything new. You could say that uh, New Mexico has a historical drought status going back a lot of years. We wanted to really understand what does it mean to be in a drought? Why should people care about it in general? And what does this mean for overall rivers, water supply in the long run? Chris, when I worked in Roswell in the southeastern part of the state, I learned a lot about our state's agricultural sector, how much our climate impacts farmers, crops, just even the economy. So we wanted to bring in an expert to answer some of our questions. We have with us Professor John Fleck from UNM. He's the director of water resources. You're a former science journalist focused on the problems of the Colorado River, which is an imperiled water source that 40 million people in the United States and Mexico depend upon. And you're also written a few books, including Water is for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. John, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's great to be here. You know, you've dedicated a lot of your career towards covering water issues, um, including drought in New Mexico. So 
why? What interests you about the topic? So water has always been a part of my life and it's always been essential. I've always lived in the Western United States, you know, half my life here in Albuquerque in places um, that are arid where water is scarce and where our ability to manage our relationship um, is sort of central to how we as communities survive. And thinking about how Albuquerque has come together as a community over, you know, centuries to manage its complex relationship with these waters is sort of central to understanding who we are as a community and where we're going in the future as population grows and water supply shrink. Do you think that the public has a general, you know, good understanding of how the weather and water impacts our drought status and what that even means really? Yeah. So it, I don't think the general public does, and I kind of don't expect them to. When I was writing for the newspaper, I figured some subset of the general public was going to be interested and I was going to help them. And also there are a whole bunch of people who do the work of water management. And that's the people I work with now as a faculty member at the university training, sort of the next generation of water managers in the University of New Mexico Water Resources Program. So I don't think the general public has to be aware, but um, I think it's really important that we think about the fact that we're living in a in a desert and that our behaviors match the reality so that there's at least a little bit of basic awareness that's required. And I think one of the great successes of Albuquerque in the 30 years that I've been here is doing a better job as a community of a whole of coming to understand that, yeah, we live in a dry place. When we have so little rain here happening in the Albuquerque area in New Mexico. Why does that matter? Yeah, I, I was talking to water resources program students yesterday about this. We're doing a section of the class where we talk about the definitions of drought. What do we mean by drought? And I, you know, was looking outside the university classroom where there's a duck pond and a lawn. And I'm like, do we have a drought here? It doesn't look any different in a dry year than a wet year. Um, and when you live in a city with the expensive plumbing system we've built to get water to our houses. Um, maybe it doesn't matter in that um, immediate way. But what matters is that the available water supply for us to make the lawns around my duck pond green. I love my duck pond at University of Mexico. Big fan of the duck pond. Many of my students don't. Um, <laughs> source of tension in class. But, but we need to realize that the water supply that's available, the, the water that comes down the Rio Grande, the water we get out of the Colorado River, the water we pump out of the ground is a finite and scarce resource that is vulnerable. And so when these things that we call droughts happen, they do in the long run affect us. In the short run, there's a bunch of people who, who they affect a lot. So if you are a farmer this year on the Rio Grande, water supply has been really scarce. If you're a fish trying to make a living in a shrinking Rio Grande, it's been a very, very bad year. So it's not just about <clears throat> me and my duck pond. Uh, me and my duck pond will be okay this year. In the long run, we need to be careful about these resources so that we can keep having duck ponds and, and fish in the river. And it has recreational, cultural significance. I spend a lot of time down along the river and in the valley floor where the ditches bring water through the valley and the people out walking, the people enjoying the river. This is a really important feature of what makes Albuquerque just the terrific place that we all that we all love. And I was talking to one of the water managers about the work that they do to bring water into the valley floor. And he said, you know, we don't want to be like Phoenix. That's we're different. We have these ditches. We have this green belt along the river that matters to sort of who we are as a community and how we recreate, how we enjoy ourselves. But also our sort of cultural identity is really bound up in that. Maybe you should ask just to set a baseline right now. Where are we at when it comes to when you look at New Mexico overall and uh, the status of drought, where does the state stand right now? We're in bad drought conditions and there's some sort of formal measures of drought. You know, a good part of the state is in extreme drought. We had 
an okay monsoon that relieved sort of some of the immediate drought. Like if you're a plant living up on the mesa, you're a little bit greener than you would have been back in in um, mid-June. Our drought conditions, though, are, are severe in terms of the amount of snow that we got last winter and then how that snowpack made it down um, the river. And, and one of the things we're seeing, you know, there's an interesting conversation among scientists that um, I work with on, on drought issues that increasingly they're thinking maybe drought is not the best word for us to use in a setting like this to communicate. And, you know, I still use it all the time. It's like, it's a helpful word, but it, it, it maybe misleads us a little bit into thinking that it's a temporary dry period and it will get wet again. And, you know, we know that the climate in the Southwest has gone through these long phases. We'll get a few wet years, we'll get a few dry years, and that's going to continue. But, but with climate change, with rising greenhouse gases and warming temperatures, the wets are less wet. And, and we really saw that this year. I mean, one of the measures of drought this year is how much water is in the river, right? And we had an 80% snowpack, you know, and maybe a 30% runoff in the major rivers that, that I follow. So the snow is not making it to the rivers as much because of dry soils, because of warmer temperatures, because all the plants up and down the system have a longer growing season and, and they're using more water. Um, and in warmer temperatures, their leaves transpire more water. So the whole system is getting drier. And there's this crazy word that my friend Brad Udall, who's a climate scientist who, who I work with, uses, which is aridification. And it's like probably a terrible word for like folks like us who are journalists and trying to communicate with people, but it's also a really meaningful world because that means in general, it's getting drier. So we'll have wet periods, but in general, it's getting drier. You mentioned snowpack. Uh, Grant Tosterud, our meteorologist here, kind of gave me a, a condensed like Cliff Notes version of how important snowpack is versus monsoon rain. When I told him we were going to interview you and to ask you specifically about this, you know, what is the difference between having good snowpack versus a good monsoon? And how does that impact river flow. Also, why is it important? Why is river flow so important here? So snowpack is really where our rivers come from. Uh, this is the way it works across the Western United States and in California with the Sierra Nevada and the Colorado River Basin with the Rockies and the Rio Grande, you know, in the San Juans. Most of the water that falls on the landscape falls in the wintertime as these big, broad storms. You know, sometimes there'll be rain down here in Albuquerque, sometimes there's snow, but what really matters is what's falling in the mountains north of us in the Sangre de Cristos and the San Juan Mountains. You build up this big snowpack in the winter, and that's where all our water comes from. That melts off in the spring and the summer. That's what puts water in the Rio Grande. And so as we have an ecosystem here along the river, and as we have farms and cities that depend on the river, it's that snowpack that we're depending on. The summer monsoons are great. They can take the edge off a dry season off a drought, but they don't contribute the same volume of water. Summer monsoons this year were really important because we were in such bad shape on the river that they allowed the farmers and the ecosystem to get a little breather from needing river water because the river water was so scarce. And so the summer monsoons can really help in a bad year, but the proportion of water they contribute is tiny compared to the snowpack. You mentioned it is getting drier. Um, and when we think about kind of the future of the river, as somebody who has studied water for much of your career. Are you concerned about just sort of where we're headed? And is there anything we can do to change it? I have a reputation in the water policy management community as being like, I'm kind of like the house optimist. People invite me to speak at their conferences because I like have an optimistic perspective. And the reason I'm optimistic is that I have seen and 
documented and studied and written about enormous success stories across the Western United States in coping with having less water, water conservation efforts. You know, Albuquerque is what really got me started on this, right? Our per capita use was basically cut in half in the last 25 years. And that's amazing when you think of a, of a major um, rich world resource-consuming community cutting its use of a critical resource in half. Amazing. Really great conservation success story. Lots of cities are doing that. I've spent time um, in farming areas, especially on the lower Colorado River, where I've written a couple of books, um, seeing farmers succeed in doing well with less water. So I'm optimistic that we have the tools and we're learning how to survive with less water. The last few years have been really disheartening, though, because the um, acceleration that we seem to be seeing in the impact of climate change is bigger and faster and more serious than I had expected. And so my optimism remains because, you know, at root, that's me saying, we've got the tools, we know how to do this. The climate change impacts have been so extreme, especially in the last couple of years, that now I'm going around saying, yeah, we know how to do these things. We got to do more of them and faster. We don't have much time left. And so you you look at, so for example, farming communities in the middle Rio Grande Valley and, you know, Albuquerque's economy, the middle Rio Grande economy doesn't depend on farming. It's a tiny part of our economy. But if, if for our culture and our way of life and the people who do this, it's critical. And so figuring out how to survive these growing shortages and still retaining that sort of the customs and the culture of our communities is a real challenge. We cut our usage in half. How did we do that? So when I first, you know, I moved in the neighborhood I live in, in I think 1993 and every house had a lawn. Now it's about one in three, one in four houses have zero lawns. Escape. <laughs> right, zero escape. And, and the lawns that we do have are smaller, right? People, and this is the most obvious example, people sort of went through this transformation. This general public went through this transformation. Like we kind of began realizing that we live in a desert. And there was a bunch of really important policy initiatives. The, the city of Albuquerque and the Albuquerque then became the Albuquerque Bernalillo County Water Utility Authority, you know, had, you know, cash for grass policies, toilet rebates, federal standards for indoor plumbing improved to do water conservation. But but more than that, it was just people's attitudes changing. So if you go to Home Depot now, um, the toilets will be advertising their low water use credentials, right? That's a marketing thing. And that you, they're doing that marketing because people want to conserve water. And you see this across the West. Cities are doing very, very well, partly because government agencies have provided incentives and done education campaigns, but partly because people get it, right? And that's encouraging. Like, yeah, we can solve problems once we get it. There seems to be a concern every summer, you know, well, particularly the summer of 2021, we saw massive wildfires and we even saw a lot of that smoke from California. There's been a lot of discussion about climate change in general. Do you look at the summer we had in 2021 and have any predictions for our winter or how good it will be? I keep feeling like, and you know, when I was at the newspaper, I covered wildfire a lot. I keep nervously watching that, especially that really critical May-June time period before the monsoons kick in, which is really our most vulnerable fire season. And and I keep thinking every year, we dodged it again, because there's a bunch of dumb luck about whether or not you have fires. And one of the reasons we've had fewer fires is because a bunch of stuff already burned that was really vulnerable, especially in the Himas in the Mountains. Um, but we're at risk every single year. Um, and, and I worry about that every single year. And as the climate warms, that risk goes up. In terms of what's coming this winter, um, the, the forecasts, the long lead forecasts don't look great for the winter again. It looks like there's a risk of another dry winter. There's a climate phenomena called 
La Nina when you have cooler temperatures in the uh, Pacific Ocean along the equator, which is one of the big drivers. It sort of steers the storm track. And during La Nina years, the storm track tends to shift to the north of us more. And just sort of on average, we tend to get fewer of these big winter storms that we need for that snowpack we talked about. We're heading into La Nina winter, so the forecasts are, you know, the odds favor a drier winter this year. It's not a guarantee. The forecast skill is modest there, but certainly the odds are favoring that. But then on top of that, we know it's going to be warmer. Like that's that's a really predictable trend. Like we know it's going to be warmer this winter than it was 30 years ago. That's the reality of climate change. And so what snow we do get is at more risk in terms of our ability to get that into the rivers that we need for, you know, farms and the ecosystem and our cities. What do we risk when we start seeing more time where the Rio Grande isn't running contiguously? Are we sort of at this kind of, I guess, precipice of you know, the identity of this state is very much at risk depending on how much more drought we see and how much warmer this gets. Um, it's interesting your choice of words. My friend, Laura Paskus, who works for NMPBS, um, does the Arlon shows there, wrote a book. which came out UNM Press last year called At the Precipice. We are at a precipice and, and we are at enormous risk. And the biggest risk I see is that we devolve into conflict, right? Because when there's gonna be less water, there's less green, right? There's less either a bosque in a riparian ecosystem or less irrigated farmland or less watered yards. We're going to have less of that. And there's a bunch of human choices associated with us deciding which stuff we want less of. And and I worry that our institutions and our politics and communities are not up to the challenge that we don't really have those tools yet to decide how. And, and I have this idealized mental model, and I work across the Western United States on these issues, that somehow we figure out a way for everybody to shrink their preferred values a little bit, and then we can all have a piece of what we um, we value the most, but there'll be less of it. So I will have less green in my yard and there will be less green bosque and less water in the river, but there will be some of it, all of those things. There will be less alfalfa, but still some that we can somehow shrink these things together. But one of the things we, we end up seeing is we end up seeing sort of struggling. It's like, well, no, I just need all that for me because this is my way of life. And those other people um, have different values than me and they're different than me. So just to heck with them. And that it's that human decision-making tension and politics and rancor that I worry the most about. Cause I'm pretty confident that, you know, if we can figure out how, just how to get along, we can, we can do this, but it's, it gets harder as there's less water. And it, it really seems contrary to sort of the values that we've created under a capitalist society where we just do as much as we possibly can. It's yeah. our right to do it. Yeah. Also at a time when increasingly we seem more divided about a lot of things. Yeah. But, but there's this long history. There's this really interesting, you know, the title of, of the first book, Waters for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West. My point was, it's a myth that water is for fighting over. And in fact, if you look, there's an enormous body of really interesting scholarship. People study conflicts over water and overwhelmingly people figure out a way to share. And it can be difficult and contentious, but ultimately the dominant solution to those problems is figuring out how to share water across a border or a boundary or a different set of communities and values. And that's the thing that gives me hope looking at what other human communities have done in the past. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it because water, I mean, is crucial to living, right? Yeah. <laughs> like we yeah. can't be fighting so much that we're yeah. unwilling to share something that is essential to really everybody's lives. So that's why I thought it was important, you know, to talk about this because I think in general, you know, 
people don't really quite understand, or maybe they do, or maybe they're, you know, don't know a farmer or haven't had those discussions where they realize, oh, my neighbors here in New Mexico are really concerned about this. Should I be? So to that regard, is there something that, you know, your average person living in the city could do? We all need to be attentive to how much water we're dumping on our yards. Um, And I think, you know, we've pretty much come most of the way down that path. One of the things I worry about, and I have a colleague I work with at the university, Benjamin Jones, who's an economist who looks at sort of public health related issues related to water use, you know, points out that you don't want to go too far because trees are an enormous benefit. Our yard trees are an enormous benefit. They clear the air, they cool off the temperatures. You can, like Benjamin's really good, like measuring these health benefits. And I used to look at dead trees and think, yay, we've conserved water. And Benjamin convinced me, yeah, but maybe we're making people sicker and we shouldn't go too far. So we need to be careful about, you know, managing the way we conserve. We need to be conscious about the fact that rising greenhouse gases that are behind the problems we're having, and we need to engage in those large-scale systemic efforts that are happening at the societal level, the United States government, the global government, to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. That's critical for two generations ahead of us. It's not going to make much of a difference to us, but it it's critical to what we hand off to our children and our grandchildren in terms of this place that we all love. The things that we can do now is is conservation-based, but also kind of what you're saying is th- there's a real need to make some decisions that are going to have long-standing effects out there. And the other thing is not just be selfish about the water, not just be mad when you, you get less water, recognize that we all got less water. What do we do as a state if the river runs dry? We just get sad. I don't know. This, I just, I, I'm so, this is so, um, this makes me so sad. I, you know, I spend a lot of time out at the Rio Grande. I have a, a spot I visit a few times a week at the Central Avenue Bridge. I've been taking pictures for years at the same spot watching the river rise and fall. We have complicated choices. And if we decide we want water in that river, we have to decide where we're going to take it from. Who's not going to get it on their yard or their alfalfa field? And we have to have, as a community, those really hard discussions about what we value. I mean, it sounds like you've hit on a lot of those points, what people can be doing and thinking about in their day-to-day lives. But is there something from the work that you've studied in your research over the years that you would really like to share with people or hope that they can take away from? I think people in Albuquerque should take great pride in what they've done in managing their water and the conservation success. Um, the aquifer beneath the city is healthy and rising. It's taken a hit the last couple of years because we've had to pump a lot of groundwater, but it's in pretty good shape. And that's important because it's harder to solve this problem, these problems going forward because they only get harder if, if, if we feel hopeless. And so I think we need to take pride in what we've done. We've been really successful in this community preparing the package that we're going to hand off to our children and our grandchildren. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we, of course, will pay attention to the work that you continue to publish here and and do at UNM. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Um, uh, UNM email, uh, uh, wrp.unm.edu is the university website. You can find me there. You can find my information there. If you do Twitter, I'm Jay Fleck on Twitter. That's probably the best place to find me. I live there. Um, Yeah, and, and also probably I'll see you out at the river. All right. Thank you so much, John. Earlier 
Earlier in this episode, you heard John Fleck there lay out his predictions for what the winter season would bring in terms of water and moisture to our state. He sourced a few long-range forecasts. We wanted to check in and see if those weather predictions came true. KRQE's own chief meteorologist, Grant Tosterud, longtime listener, first-time guest, is here now <laughs> to talk a bit more about what happened over the last six months. Grant, thanks for being here. Welcome. Yeah, you know I'm a big fan. I'm so happy to be here. We appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> love having you here. Well, what did happen this past winter? Was it as dry as predicted? You know, the predictions were, like you heard Professor John Fleck say, we were expecting to see a drier than average winter and a warmer than average winter uh, directly tied to a double dip La Nina or a La Nina for the second year in a row. And that is exactly what happened. Uh, this year, we once again saw La Nina redevelop, especially right during the winter months. And usually when we see those colder than average uh, sea surface temperatures out in the Pacific Ocean occur during the winter, that's when we feel its biggest effects here on the southwestern part of the country. And that's exactly when we saw kind of the height of that La Nina develop. And again, we saw a very similar situation that happened to the previous winter going into 2020 and 2021, where we saw very dry conditions during that period. And then we kind of saw an uptick there in the end of the winter. So as we look back on the three months that define uh, meteorological winter. Now it's a little different than say astronomical winter when you say we reach the equinox or the solstice and the, the seasons change. The meteorological winter is defined as the three coldest months on average out of the year. So that's December, January, and February. So a, a drier than average and a warmer than average winter is exactly what we saw. In fact, looking back on those three months, December 21 into January and February of 2022, it was the 20th warmest winter on record for us here in New Mexico. Now those records go back about 150 30 years or so. Um, on average, temperatures were about two and a half degrees above normal. And it doesn't sound like a huge, a huge threshold, but when you consider that over the entire state, that's a pretty big number. But I think the more shocking numbers come with our lack of precipitation over the course of those three months. It was the 22nd driest winter on record. And uh, especially December and January, that's when things were really the driest here in New Mexico. When we look back on December and January, that was really when we had the driest period of the winter here in New Mexico and in Albuquerque, when things were averaging so dry, it was like the 22nd driest two month period on record for us here in New Mexico. And temperatures, in terms of temperatures, it was, it was the second warmest too. So you get those extremes thanks to that double dip La Nina. However, once we started to see that La Nina kind of weaken a little bit into the end of winter and we see other climate modes kind of take a bigger a bigger forefront in our in our weather here in New Mexico, that's when things really started to change because in February, things got so cold and so active here across the state. It went from one of the warmest winters on record to, and one of the driest winters on, re on uh, record here in New Mexico to still one of the drier ones. It was still the 26th February driest February on record here in New Mexico, even though we started to pick up, we started to make up a lot of pace on just how dry December and January were. But when it comes to temperatures, we were going from the second warmest winter on record to then the 25th coldest February on record when we got to February. So we saw this big change that really helped improve a lot of the snowpack up across the Northern mountains. Because when you look back when we started to see snow, you know, back in October and November, it was a very slow start to the snowpack up across the Northern mountains. And of course we all know that kind of, that feeds down into the Rio Grande and eventually here through Albuquerque and all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. But we made up a lot of progress in February and March. If you just look at the ski resorts, that's kind of an easy anomaly for, for us here in New Mexico to kind of compare how average the snowpack is doing without getting too nitty gritty into the numbers. Because at the beginning of the year, you saw them making all of this snow because it was so slow 
up across northern New Mexico. And then at the end of the year, we got week after week after week after week of active snowstorms, and it was great. And so now that actually put us in a pretty good position when it comes to our snowpack. The snowpack here in New Mexico, especially up in the northern mountains, typically peaks anywhere from about the first week of March towards the end of March. So we're, we're kind of past the peak snow water equivalent is what it's called, that kind of liquid equivalent of snowfall up in the northern mountains. We're past that here in New Mexico into the Rio Grande headwaters, though, into southern Colorado. That actually peaked just a few days ago. And ever since we started seeing this warmer weather return and that kind of more active weather started backing off a little bit, we really started seeing that snow that snowpack come down in numbers and it's, and it's falling pretty steadily. I remember seeing all the snow cams. Yeah. And just being, wow, like looking at red river cameras and Taos and all the pictures you were retweeting. Um, I was like, wow, we are getting a lot of snow pretty late in the season. Um, but did we get enough? I, I mean, can we ever really have enough snow? Mm. <laughs> Especially, you know, just how dry things have been. I hate to say that we didn't have enough because we never have enough snow, but in terms of 30 year averages, we were pretty close to the average amount of snowfall by the end of this season, thanks to a very active February and March. So we're heading through spring now. Where are we at now? You kind of addressed we're close to average, but where does that put us going into spring? The bad news is about spring is that is oftentimes our driest time period here in New Mexico. The spring months are usually the driest months we see here across the state because of the pattern changes. The jet stream starts lifting northward. We see more areas of high pressure build over the state. It brings in this kind of spring warmth. It can bring in the spring wind, bringing in these allergies too. When it comes to rain and snowfall, this is kind of the quieter time of the year. We see big wind events, but we don't often see big blockbuster rain or snow events. What should we see for it to be a normal or healthy spring? So what we can hope for in terms of moisture is still seeing a fairly active storm pattern, but with temperatures warming and the jet stream lifting north, we're going to see more of those impacting Southern Colorado as opposed to Northern New Mexico or the state as a whole. Okay. So what can you say for us um, making predictions in the future? What's ahead for the dry season here in New Mexico? Again, not great news there. It's looking in the next three months, a lot of the forecast models for that longer climate period is showing that there's a high confidence of above average temperatures all the way into June here across New Mexico. And when you're looking at precip, there's a pretty good confidence too that we're going to be hanging on to below average precip for the next three months as well until, until fingers crossed, the monsoon kicks in. Anything else you want to add, Grant? One thing that I found that I've done a little bit of research on too, and Professor John Fleck brought this up a little bit, especially when it comes to snow melt in the spring and how important that is. And he was talking about, you know, monsoon storms and rains put a dent in the drought and in the flow of the Rio Grande. However, it's the snowpack that's most important up across the Northern mountains. Another important thing about climate change when it comes to snowmelt is that yes, we're in a more prolonged drought. So like Professor Fleck said, that is going to be more of that water is going to be absorbed into the ground. But another thing is what we're seeing is incredibly fast warming springs. And the, the bad thing about that is we see the snow melt off faster than it ever has before. And so we might get these big rushes of water into the Rio Grande and these really quick, fast snow melt, but it's going to be moving in quick and then it's gone and it won't linger into the end of the year. So that's another really big worry uh, meteorologists and climatologists have when it comes to warming climates is that that snow is not going to slowly melt and slowly feed the Rio Grande over the course of the summer. 
it's all going to be melting off very quickly. We won't have that, that snowpack up north to keep it replenished as long as we usually would. Grant, thanks for the perspective. Where can people reach you? I'm on, on Twitter and on Facebook at Grant Tostru WX. You can also find me on Instagram and now on TikTok. Whoa, Grant has a TikTok. <laughs> yes. We do not have one of those yet for the pod. We should get on that. I'm intrigued. Thanks to John Fleck and Grant Tosterud for chatting with us on this episode. Before we go, we wanted to give you a quick update on what we talked about last episode, the special session and the proposed cash payments to help pay for increased costs like high gas prices. Last Tuesday, lawmakers indeed made it just a one-day special session, passing two bills. That includes passing the revised junior spending bill, fueling about $50 million into projects all over the state. Lawmakers also passed the rebate checks for all New Mexicans. Those rebates will be a total of $1,000 for joint filers and $500 for individual tax filers. Those rebates will be split in half and go out in two rounds. That means each round will be $500 for joint filers and $250 for single filers. Round one is expected to go out in May and June. Round two will go out in August. There's also no income limit on those rebates either. We have a full breakdown that covers how much you'll see and it answers a lot of extra questions around it. Our favorite guest, Curtis Segarra, wrote it up. He titled it New Mexico Tax Rebates. How much will you get? We will also put a link to that story in our episode notes. Thanks for joining us for the podcast this week. We're back again, of course, on Tuesday with another episode. Questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, all of those are welcome. You can reach out to me. I'm at chris.mckee at krqe.com. Also, Chris McKee TV on Twitter. And I'm gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com. Save the complaints for Chris. Email me with your good ideas. Just kidding. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at gburknm. Thanks for listening. Okay. If you stuck around this long for the very end of this episode, I'll add in this bonus part. Uh, we were thinking about talking about water in this whole thing, and uh, it, it really sent me onto a tangent, which those who know me know I'm, I'm famous for tangents. And Chris um, is also famous for just having knowledge about the most random things. This one comes uh, because of a family member who actually appeared as an extra in this film. Um, so what comes to mind when I think of water in New Mexico is this film. It's a really funny movie. Um, it was shot in Northern New Mexico. I think it was in the eighties, directed by Robert Redford. It's called the Milagro Beanfield War. So if you haven't seen it, it's, it is pretty funny. It also features a very young Christopher Walken and it clearly has a sense of how beautiful the scenery is in New Mexico. It was shot around Truchas, north of Española. So in short, this movie is about <laughs> a guy who grows a, a bean field in protest to a developer buying up water rights and also property in the area for a resort development that's supposed to be built in this town around this town of Milagro, which is a fictional town. Um, it's home to a bunch of farmers. So. Check out the movie Milagro Beanfield War. You will see a lot of iconography of just sort of beautiful imagery from New Mexico. And um, I got to hand it to Robert Redford. He also put in that this movie took place in New Mexico. Usually New Mexico 
is used as this backdrop for Texas. So we get a whole lot of like street cred. Oh, we shoot movies in New Mexico, but when it actually shows up on screen, it never says it's New yeah. Mexico, I feel like. So. Well, anyway. and also this is not an ad, just a random fact that Chris thought of when he thought of water. Not an ad. You can uh, find it online <laughs> however you want to. Milagro Beanfield Water. Here's your fun fact for this Tuesday. All right. Thanks for listening. 